Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and open the word and study. We, Lord, we come before you for all those that have been, that are hurt in the church, that you'll touch their bodies and heal them, and for the different accident vehicle, victims that we've around this area. And Lord, we ask for your guidance and leading as we go through this chapter to finish the book of Deuteronomy in your son's name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 34. 34? 34, the last chapter. Verse 1, And Moses went up from the plains of Moab and to the mountains of Nebor, to the top of, of Pisgah, that is over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan, and all in Aphidali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah unto the utter, utmost sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, and uh, the city of the palm trees unto Zoar, and the Lord said unto them, This is the land which I swore unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it to your seed. I have caused you to see it with your own eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, over against Beth Beor. But no man knows of his sepulcher unto this day. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim nor his natural force abated. The children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, so the days of weeping and mourning of Moses were ended. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all the servants and to all of his land and in all the that mighty hand and all the mighty terror which Moses showed in all the sight of all Israel. Israel. Alright. Obviously this last chapter was not written by Moses. <laughs> Alright. It's the only part of the Pentateuch that's not written by Moses. Uh, most people believe that it was written by Joshua as just a little tagged in the in this, in this book. So we're going to look at this over. Moses went up from the plains of Moab, and this is after he spent this last chapter that we talked about giving the blessings to the children of each of the tribes. And the whole book, now we've taken months to get through this book, but this was given by Moses in one to two days, maybe a week or two at the most. He was just giving a straight up constant teaching of re-giving the law. Telling the people, because it had been 40 years since all this material had been given, and he's saying, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're going to learn. And he's reminding them what they were supposed to know. And I love it that God keeps reminding us of the things we're supposed to know, because we tend to forget so easily. And God is so patient, so gentle, and he keeps reminding us and he does this all through the scriptures. He keeps reminding us about all the things we're supposed to know. And oh, how easy it is to forget. <laughs> to forget the, what, uh, what he teaches. And it's been said that Christians forget what, we're, forget what we're supposed to remember and remember what we're first supposed to forget. And it really is true that that is what we spend a lot of time doing. We keep remembering all the things we're supposed to forget. The th- our sin and other sins. And we forget all about God's graciousness and his love and his mercy so often. And uh, here it says that Moses went up from the plains of Moab up to the mountains of Nebor to the top of Mount Pisgah. And that's a tall mountain over in that area. 
I don't know that it's tall enough to see by nature, you know, by the natural eye, the entirety of the land. I, I really do believe that there's some supernatural sight here because he's seeing all the way to Dan, which is the northernmost part of Israel. He sees all the way from Mount Pascal to the Mediterranean, which is possible. It's only about 100 miles. Uh, he sees all the way down to the, the desert that, between Israel and, and Egypt. He's being shown all of this land. And why was he shown this? Because God says, you're going to see it, but you're not entering in. You're going to see it, but not enter in. What is, what is the land, of the promised land represent? It represents our spiritual uh, blessings and walk. The wilderness is that dryness, which so many, so many Christians spend their entire walk of Christianity in the wilderness. Eating manna, drinking water, having God provide for them and never recognizing all that they're being blessed by. And the promised land represents that spiritual blessings doesn't represent heaven. Some people will say it represents heaven. No, it represents spiritual fulfillment, the life, the spirit-filled life, that victorious life that says, I have it. Jesus, God gave them the land flowing with milk and honey, a land with abundance. And if you remember when they first went in, at the big, way back of the book of Numbers, they went into the land and they came back, the spies came back, and they came back with one bunch of grapes that they had to carry on a pole between two men. That's a pretty good sized bunch of grapes. I've seen some decent sized grapes in my life, but I have never seen ones that would take two people to carry one bunch. You know, I got to think about how big those grapes were. They came back with vegetables and fruit that just were phenomenally large. What a blessing God had prepared for them. And he says, this is the land that I'm going to give you. And for us as Christians, that's where God wants to take us, where blessings are bountiful. But most of us have two problems. We keep forgetting all the things that God tells us to do, so we're going to live in the wilderness. And we don't really believe that God wants to bless us. Now, that's not that God has to bless us or must bless us. We were talking a little bit before, all the, all the faith uh, people, you know, give us your seed money, you, you give us your hundred, two hundred, a thousand, you know, ten thousand dollars and watch God make it grow. That's not what God says. That's not, that is being presumptuous. That's not being faith, faith thought, and thought. He's going, but God does want to give us great blessings. He's promised us to meet our needs. That's easy. Most of us will accept that. But you know, God also wants to give us some of our desires. You know, and it's amazing. We see somebody like George Mueller. And he prays for his needs. And yet his needs got grown beyond what most people's uh, wants become. You know, it was, he was going through 10,000 pounds a month at one point in time. Which in the 1800s, 10,000 pounds was a lot of money. 10,000 pounds in this day and age is a lot of money. But in the 1800s, you're talking, he was doing close to, you know, a half a million to a million every month. And that was his need. Why? Because he had learned to trust God. And this is something we want to, where are we willing to say, God, how far is, will we go with you to help, to help? How far will we trust you and see you grow us. And it's an amazing thing as we watch and we see God doing things. 
And the more faithful we are, the more he will give us to do. He says, he is faithful in, in little, he will give much. And if you're not faithful in little, he'll say, well, you don't deserve much because you're not even being faithful with the little I've given you. And the more we're faithful, the more he'll give us. And the more he gives us, the, more, the greater the need becomes because you're being faithful. And, you know, this is the goal that I have for us as a church. Let us be faithful in, in the little things he's doing, and then we'll go forward and minister in whatever he wants to take us to. And who knows where God's going to take us to? We want to be faithful. Faithful in little things and go into the big things. Start living in the spiritual rest, the spiritual abundance. How do we do that? Well, we talked about it Sunday morning. We start thinking on the right things. We start dwelling on the right things. We start understanding that God is always good and that his word is true and that, that he has a plan for us. Now, the more we start to look for that plan that God has for us, the more we'll see him move. And you know what? The great thing is the more you see him move, the more you will continue to see him move. You keep joining him and you'll see greater and greater blessings. And it's an amazing thing is you watch God work. And I've talked about this. I'm seeing God work in so many great ways because I've learned to be more and more faithful with him. And each one of you, I've watched people grow in this church and they're growing more and more faithful and they're watching God do more and more mighty things in their life. They're tackling things they never thought they would do. They were doing things they never thought they would do. We have people actually sharing the gospel who never thought they would share the gospel. You know, we've given tools to do it. We've given tracks to do it. We've given ways to do it. And people are doing things they've never thought they would do. Talking about Jesus each day. Getting into the word and studying his word. Honoring him with their gifts and watching God bless. And you know, God is just wanting to see a little bit. And it's pretty an amazing thing. If we just bend a little bit God's way, he takes a giant step <laughs> to meet us. It's just like the prodigal son. The prodigal son started walking home and the father ran out to meet the son. Saying, okay, you started, you started repentance. I'm going to go out and I'm going to meet you. We start making the steps and God says, all right, let's go. I'm going to, I'm going to run out here and meet you and walk back with you and show you how to do it. And here we see Moses going to the top of the mountain. He's seen all the land of the promised land the land that he said that God says, I gave it, I swore it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, it took God a long time for them to get their land, just 430 years. God's mind short. You know, Jesus told the disciples, I'm coming back quickly. That was over 2,000 years ago, or about 2,000 years ago. Uh, quickly to God, but not necessarily quickly to humans. But you know, God keeps his promises. Always, always keeps his promise. And he's always good. This is something that we have to always keep in mind. God is good all the time. And we need to remember that when it doesn't seem like he's doing something good for us. We need to remember God is good all the time. When it doesn't look like things are going our way, God is good all the time. When you're living in the, in the time of Job where everything seems to be going wrong, God is good all the time. Uh, and this is why when you seem to have bad things going in your, hand, in, your, in your life, 
Note number one that I say you seem to have bad things going on in your life because God is good all the time and he is going to work all things for good for those who called according to the purpose of God. So when we go through what we think are bad times, we need to just trust in God. Billy? We need to what's bad and what's tough. That might not be a bad thought. Uh, uh, I would say that if you really trust God, there is no such thing as something bad going on in your life. I would say tough would be a better, better definition. It's hard for me for a number of reasons. Maybe God is trying to work my flesh out of a situation. And to do that takes putting us in the fire, giving us hard times to say, I want you to think like I think. I want you to behave the way I do, so let's get your flesh out of this, out of this picture. So you go through a very hard time as he puts you in the fire. Sometimes he's just saying, I want you to learn. You, know, you said you believed what I said. Now let's see, do you truly believe what I said? And that can be a big deal. Well, he had already told him he wasn't going to there, so his blessing well, his blessing was to see the land that he had been thinking about for 40, 40 plus years because his whole mind had been for more than 40 years was going to the promised land, taking his people to the promised land. But also, if you think about this, the promised land is spiritual abundance. God shows every Christian the promised land, the spiritual abundance. Most of us choose, or many choose, not to go into spiritual abundance. They go, God, I'm just going to stay out here in the wilderness because I, there's giants in that spiritual abundance. There's, there's, tough, there's, there's enemy in that spiritual abundance, God. I'm just going to stay out here in the desert where, yeah, it's tough, it's hot, it, it's, I'm thirsty, but God, you're giving me manna, you're giving me water. You're sustaining me, God. I can, I can live under sustainment. I don't need to be blessed. Well, his judgment was because he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And then, but the point that we're making is all Christians are said, here's this spiritual abundance. You can walk in it. And been through my experience, very few Christians actually ever step into abundant living. They just stay out there saying, God, I'm just out here. I don't. And it, it, it works into the self-righteousness. God, I don't deserve to be blessed. I'm not good enough to be blessed. So I'm just going to sit out here in the wilderness and just sustain my life. Or God, you know, I just don't believe that, you, that, you're, that it's there. Or I just don't believe you're going to give me victory over all those enemies over there. Uh, as the spies said, you know, uh, there's giants in the land and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. Okay. Uh, and we spent a long time, when we, when we went into that statement, we spent a long time going into this. How many times do we assign motive to what we see? They said we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. You know, they can crush us and that's how they see us. Rahab tells us later on in the next book, you know, we know what God's done to Egypt. We know what he's done to Moab. We've known, we know what he's done to all these countries, and we're afraid of you guys. We're afraid of your God. 
the spies said the people were not afraid of them, we're afraid of them, and yet the testimony of the people that live there are, we're terrified of your God and what your God can do. Too often we are afraid of the things we see out there and not willing to step out with God. If God is on our side, there is nothing that's too big, too hard, too strong for us. Because God fights the battle. He's the buckler, he's the shield, he's the sword, he's the breastplate, he's the, tr- the girdle of truth, he's the, bre- the shoes of the gospel of truth. He is everything, and he's the one that's going to do the fighting for us. Israel went into the promised land, and God says, no one will stand up against you because I go before you. And we're going to see miracles that God does to win the battles for his people. Why? Because he is the one that does the battle. And we've got to remember this. When we go forward with God in spiritual battle, he is the one that does the battle. He may use our voice. He may use our hands to pass out the track, but it is he that's doing the battle. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to convict the person of their sins so that they will get saved. When we give out the track and we give our fumbling, bumbling talk to the person trying to give them the gospel, it's the Holy Spirit that's the one that does the work. And if you've got it well polished, it's still the Holy Spirit that does the work. And as a matter of fact, your well polished speech may not be that good when it comes to being able to present the gospel. Have you ever listened to somebody who just sounded like they were just rattling off something they didn't even believe? It was just a bunch of words. I've heard this with evangelists. Some of them have great messages, but if you hear them two or three times, it's the same exact message. It's not, nothing brand new. Nothing. It's just the same message over and over and over again that they could rattle off in their sleep. I'm not saying it's a bad message necessarily. It's just not a fresh message. And we need to be willing to give out fresh messages to people. When you're telling about people about what has God done in your life, are you still dwelling on something that happened 15, 20, 30 years ago? Or is there something that's going on today that God has done in the last week, in the last month? Is there something God has done recently in your life that gives you something that's fresh to share with people? Because the last thing people want to hear, okay, yeah, all right, wonderful. God did something for you 30 years ago. What's he done for you? You know, that was the last time he did anything for you? And I've actually asked people, I'm going, they'll be talking about their 20, 15, 20-year, you know, experience. I'm going, wow, what's God done lately for you? Has he given you any blessings lately? Anybody, have you given the gospel lately? Have you had any blessings lately? And it's very important that we keep this in mind. God said that his name is I am that I am. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he also says that they're not dead, they're alive in his presence. He is the God of the now. He's not the God of the dead. He's not the God of the past. And he's not even the God of the future. He is both of those, but he's not primarily those. He knows that we live in the now, and he says, I am. Now, for God... He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at the same time and all the time at the same time. So he doesn't understand this past, present, future in one one very real way. But in our dealing with him, 
I need to deal with him right this moment. I can't change my decisions in the past. Okay, whatever I've done in the past, I cannot change those. You can't change them. None of us can change anything that's been done in the past. We might be able to ask for forgiveness. We can change the direction that we're walking, but we cannot change what has already been done. It is done. We can't you know, let it go, ask for forgiveness, repent, and go forward. We can't control the future. This little picture of the person's in the cra car crash. You know, this person fully expected to be going home wherever they were on vacation, wherever it was, and the person who died, their life terminated. 10,000 people a day have their life terminated. Every single person had plans. They had doctor's visits. They were planning visit, uh, uh, different activities. They were planning to do things in their church. They were planning, maybe if they were a Christian, to go share the gospel with somebody sometime. Sometime, when I get around to it, I will go talk to this person. You know, we don't know how much longer we have in our life. We need to be talking to these people. If God puts somebody on your heart and, and that is not saved or you don't know if they're saved, talk to them. Pray for them. I have this habit. When God puts somebody on my mind, I pray for them. I don't know what it is that they're going through, but I'm going to pray for them. And if, they're my, if they stay on my mind, I'll send them a message and say, you know, I've been thinking about you and praying for you. Is there anything I need to... You know, anything I need to pray about in specifics? Yeah. And this is what we're looking at. In the future, we really have no control. None. Each one of us, after this Bible study, plan to go home. Odds are, we'll make it home. But we could be one of the 10,000 people who don't make it home. For whatever reason. An accident, your physical health giving out, uh, some some crazy moron that shoots you or runs you off the road, whatever it might be, any number of things could keep us from being able to go through the rest of this day. Who are you supposed to talk to? Who are you supposed to pray for? We only have control of this little moment of time in our life. And as soon as, you know, I can't even say now fast enough for it to be gone. And, you know, by the time I say now, it's in the past and can't be changed. We have a very slender sliver, less than a nanosecond of time that we're in any kind of control of. And that's where we make our decisions on how we're going to follow God, what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. Moses, in that moment of time, struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And God says, you're not going to go into the promised land. I know you've been looking at it for 40 years. You're not going into spiritual abundance. You're not going to go into the easy street. You're going to die here, outside the promised land, in this land of suffering and, and hardship. And yet so many Christians choose to, that to be their life. God, I just want to suffer for a while because I think that's what I deserve. God, I am just so miserable. I deserve to suffer. Well, you know what? I'm a blood-bought Christian who has Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I dwell in Christ, and God sees me as perfect. I deserve by those restrictions, all spiritual blessings that God has for us in grace. Not because I earn it, not because I deserve it, but because of who he is. Not because of anything I do, but because of who he is. He, we are clothed in Christ, and because of that, we deserve all spiritual abundance. 
Why do the children of Israel get to spiritual abundance? Has nothing to do with who they are. You know, we've gone through five books, well, four books, not counting Genesis, four books about how wonderful they are. God, uh, we're angry with you. We're going to gripe and complain. We don't have enough water. We don't have enough food. We don't like this man. It's, it's getting old. Give us, give us something else. Uh, God, we're going to worship these idols every time we turn around. God, 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 this, that, the other thing. You're not doing this, God. God would have been perfectly within his rights to say, okay, another 40 years in the wilderness, people, we'll let your children, maybe your children will grow up and be ready for this. And yet he had made a promise. He told their parents a generation before, 40 years before, your children will go into the promised land. No conditions on it. He says they will go into the promised land. And sure enough, they went into the promised land. Not that they deserved it, but because of who God is. And this is what we need to keep in mind. In my flesh, I deserve help. In my flesh, I deserve nothing good. I deserve all kinds of bad things in my life. Because of who I am in Christ, because he is my Savior and my Lord, and I dwell in him because of who he is, I get the riches of heaven. The grace of God says, I'm giving you the riches of heaven. Moses gets to only see the riches. He's not going to get in. Verse, four, uh, verse 5 says, And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he was buried in the, in the valley of the land of Moab, over against Beth Beor. But no man knows of his sepulcher unto this day. And this is kind of interesting. Nobody knows where the body of Moses is born. Why? We're going to go to the wonderfully long book of the book of Jude. No, it's not born. Yeah, we'll go with buried. He was born in Egypt. (laughs) Jude, verse 9. It's only one chapter. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring him a railing accusation, but said to the Lord, the Lord rebuke you. So Moses was taken by the archangel Michael from the top of Pisgah to someplace in Moab to be buried. And the Bible tells us this in the book of Jude. Tells us that he was taken by the angel. Now you kind of wonder, you know, why would this happen? And at the very end of this chapter we see that Moses is revered as the greatest prophet of all of Israel. Even to this day, the only one that comes close is Elijah. And Can you imagine if they knew where Moses was buried? How many pilgrimages there would be to the grave of Moses? Uh, It's bad enough when they, you know, that they know where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. They can't get to them now because the Muslims are claiming them as their, their holy site. Now just imagine if they knew where Moses' body was. But you know, same thing, if Jesus had ever ridden anything or had built anything that we know of, can you imagine the pilgrimages to the sacred books of Jesus wrote? You know, they would be considered so special. And that's why I believe that he never wrote a book. He never you know, did anything that was going to be something that were, was a site that people could go and make an idol out of it. They would, worship, they would worship that item rather than worshiping God. 
And this happened with the bronze serpent. Remember the bronze serpent in the book of Numbers when the snakes were coming in, they would bite the people and they were dying? Moses put up a bronze serpent and people, all they had to do was look at the bronze serpent and they would be healed. The bronze serpent became an idol. In Hezekiah's day, I believe it was Hezekiah, it might have been Josiah, but one of those two kings destroyed the bronze serpent because it had become an idol. This is the tendency that people have is to worship something they can see as special. The Catholics have done this. They've got uh, bits of the cross in, in cathedrals and all over Europe. They've got the bones of the apostles all you know, scattered all through Europe and, and the rest of the world. The amazing thing is, if, each, if, there was, if all those things were truly the bones and the, and the crosses, cross of Jesus, man, they were some big guys <laughs> and a big cross. Uh, you know, they just took pieces of wood and said, this is the cross, and, and put it different places. Uh, but, you know, people make pilgrimages to these places to worship, supposedly God, but to really, they worship the item that is represented there. Anything, anything that they can use as a focus point of worship, which then becomes an idol. Our focus needs to be on God, not something. And, you know, even in our churches, as we have good churches, we can have big problems sometimes where people, you know, even as much as I love the word of God, we need to be careful not to make this book an idol. I know people who will not throw away an old beat-up Bible because the Bible itself is sacred in their mind. Okay, now, I appreciate it. I treat it with, you know, all due respect. But, you know, I've worn out a lot of Bibles over my lifetime, and they are not sitting in shelves gathering dust, you know, when they're falling apart. When the pages are falling out of my Bible, it's time to replace the Bible, and this one's getting really close to time to being replaced because things are starting to fall out of it. And, and, you know, when it's that part, it's just a book at that point. It's got God's word in it. Yes, it's got truth in it. But it really is just a book. Uh, one of the things that both mesmerized me and horrified me when I went to an Orthodox Jewish synagogue was they made a big deal of unlocking this cabinet, pulling the Torah out of it, that was covered, and they paraded it up one aisle, down the other aisle, while people were reaching out to it. And on one side of me, it's, wow, they're really honoring God. But the other side of me is like, what an idol they have here. And I'm not sure which one was more, <laughs> more true. It was very much, wow, look at how much it's honored. But at the same time, I'm thinking, this is bordering on idolatry. And they make it unattainable because it's wrapped. You're not to touch it. Only the guy that's touching it. Then they take it to this podium and then they unwrap it in a very ceremonial way. They roll it out when they're using gloved hands with they do it. And the guy who's reading it takes up a silver pointer and points to the words. He's not allowed to touch it with his hands. Okay. So you're, you're sitting there and you're going, okay, I understand the honor of God, but have you crossed from honor into worship? And I'm not trying to judge them, but it was something that just struck me as I'm watching all of this. I love God's word, but I'm not going to sit there and say this book in and of itself is sacred. In the Iron Curtain and behind the Bamboo Curtain, if they get hold of a Bible, 
Do you know the first thing they do with that Bible? They tear it apart, not ripping it, but along the seams so that everybody can have a few pages of the Word of God. And then when they come together, they swap those pages around to get another, page, another part of the book. Why? Because they don't have enough books. Now, we tell people in America that, and it's like, how could you tear apart the Bible like that? Well, number one, we don't hold the Bible in the same high esteem as most people do in this world. Most Christians in our country have three, four, five, six Bibles. Most non-Christians in our country have a Bible or two or three. They may not read them, but they have them. A piece of something is better than none, none at all. But we see the Word of God is very valuable. And believe me, when I get into the words, everything about the words is what I want. I want the words. But it's not the book itself that I'm looking at. It's not the room itself that we worship in that's all important. Okay? And I know people out there that it's the sanctuary. Don't use the sanctuary for anything else. It's for prayer and God's word. You know, the time we've had a music group in there, that would freak many people out. You did what? Uh, a lot of smaller churches that don't have pews use it for gathering for food and stuff, and people really freak out. You're eating food? You're eating a meal in the sanctuary? Well, what's so special about the room? Yes, we worship God, but I can worship God up there in Maggie Day. I can worship God out in the park. Okay, we could hold church out in the park if we wanted to just as, just as effectively as we can inside the building. Okay, yeah. Now, is the inside of the building good in many ways? Yeah, it keeps us out of the sun, the wind, and the rain. It, it has music that we can control the volume of. We have the instruments in there that are controllable. We can easily record. Yes, there's great value in having a place to meet. But you know what? There may come a time in this country where we will not be meeting in a church anymore. So don't worship the book, but what's in the book? What's in the book. Don't worship a, a particular room, but what's in the room is God and his people. Most of it is the people in the church that bring the feelings. I mean, it's, yes, if you use a room over and over for the same purpose, it gets a, gets a little bit of consecrated feel. To it, that room is no more special than any other room. This room is no more special than any place else. And there may be a day when we're meeting in somebody's home, we're meeting in some cave. Who knows what's going to happen? I'm not belittling the work. I'm not belittling having a place where you meet. But just be careful that you don't start worshiping the physical things. Uh, it is what they represent that we're wanting to, to meet. The church is each one of us that meet together. The ecclesia, the gathering together of, of like-minded people. That's the church. It's not this building. This building is not the church. The church is those of us who come each time we open the doors. All right, verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he was buried in the valley of the land of Moab over against Beth Beor. No man knows where his sepulcher is. And Moses was 120 years old when he died, and his eye was not dim, nor his nature, natural force abated. How would you like that to be your testimony? You died at the peak, in peak condition. He hadn't lost his eyesight. He hadn't lost his strength. God has ju had just told him, you were, basically, he said, you are physically able to come in, but you're not coming in because I said you're not coming in. 
Yeah. There's, a, there's an old adage that the safest place to be is wherever God has placed you. And you will not die until God is done with you. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, you will not die until God is done with you. And then you're going to die when God's done with you. You're going to die no matter what. Mm -hmm. Now you could be the strongest person in the world, the healthiest person in the world, and God says it's time to go home. You're going home. You could be the weakest person in the world, and God says, nope, not done with you. You're going to stay around for a little longer yet. And you get to go maybe decades as the weakest person alive. You know, you shouldn't, should have been dead decades ago. And God says, nope, not done with you. In your weakness, you're able to be used. And other times God's going to say, nope, it's time to come home. This is Moses. Still strong. If he hadn't been disobedient, or as I have said, probably more specifically, if he had been repentant, he probably would have gone into the promised land. And remember what I've said, you know, Every time you see Moses, he blames the people. It's your fault that I'm going, not going into the promised land. Your fault. He never, ever repented. He pointed to the people and said, it's all your fault. And I believe, I really believe that is why he didn't enter into the promised land, because he would not repent of his action. He blamed others. And that is something we do so frequently as humans. Not my fault. If you hadn't done that, I would not have gotten mad. So it's your fault. It's not my fault that I got mad. It's your fault that you made me mad. Okay. Um, and yet, how often do we do that? We need to get to the place where we say, God, I messed up. That person really made me angry. But you know, God, it was me who who'd made the mistake. I'm asking your forgiveness. And then you go and ask the person who made you mad for their forgiveness, whether they deserve it or not. And, you, and then if they accept it, great. If not, great. You've done what you need to do. But, you know, we need to be quick to seek forgiveness from God, even when we don't think it's our fault. Even when we're Moses and you people have just angered me so much today and you know, have been bugging me so bad that I hit the rock and, and yelled at the rock to bring water and... Now I won't repent because it's all your fault. How often do we do this? It's always somebody else's fault. Yes, the highways are a quite interesting place. They can, they can test, test the best of us. Uh, I, 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 do, I understand that one very well. Yeah, I still get well. very impatient on the highway at, at dumb drivers. <laughs> so... But the most important thing for us is always remember, no matter what we think caused our sin, we are still the one at fault. Mm. You know, we see that gorgeous person, whether male or female, <laughs> that just tempts us and we end up in an adulterous or a fornicating affair. Now, and if it just wasn't for them being so good looking and so, so wonderfully kind and, and wonderful personality, I just would not have fallen. No, you're guilty of the sin. Confess it. Get over it. And avoid that person if you can't control yourself by being there. But this is what I'm saying. We're guilty of our own decisions. It's not the person or the thing that causes our sin it may be a little bit of the cause, but we are the one that chose 
to do that. And again, what is it that we think about? What is it that we concentrate on? If we go back to Sunday's message, if whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are good report, if we're thinking on those kind of things, then we're going to be looking, we're going to be quick to repent, and we're not going to be as quickly angered at people because we're going to be looking for the good in them as well. Now, some people are much harder to find the good in than others. Some are very easy to find the good in. But, you know, you can find good in just about everybody. You can find something that's good to, to be concentrating on if you're looking for it. Now, if you're not looking for it, you'll find the bad because the flesh is really good about finding bad. Really good. It's our natural state is to find the bad in people and bad in us. You know, how often do we really truly look at the bad in us and not, not accept who we are in Christ? You know, Moses goes home because of his disobedience. Verse 9, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses has laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Did you read number 8? Yep, that was that he, was, that he lived. Oh, I skipped the eight. I'm sorry. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plain of Moab 30 days, so the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. This is the same thing they did when Aaron died. They, they, they mourned for 30 days. Now, I didn't have time to look into what, what the foundations of the mourning of 30 days. There's nothing biblical in it. There's no standard of it being biblical. But the Jews, even I think even to today, practice a lot of this week-long, month-long mourning. And they would... You know, one so wonderful in Jesus' day, they hired people to be professional mourners. I don't have time to mourn myself, so I'm going to hire, I'm going to hire you people to mourn for me. You know, yell real loud. I want everybody to know how sad I am. I'm going to hire the best. You know, how loud can you be? Because the louder you were mourning, the more, the more sorry you were. And you know, we laugh about it, but it, you know, it really was. They, they hired people to be, you know, be their mourners for them for their 30 days of mourning. Uh, and hire people. You know, what a job. Can you, how would you like to be moaning for somebody's death for 30 days and then you go to the next person's house and mourn for 30 days for, you know, might be, I don't know if it would be easy money or not. <laughs> might be hard to mourn for that long. <laughs> You'd have a pretty miserable life <laughs> if you're, all you're doing is mourning because it would affect you after a while that you're mo- doing nothing but mourning. <laughs> all right, now to verse 9. <laughs> And Joseph was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him. You know, God wants to fill us with his spirit and does fill us with the spirit. But you know, how often do we not let the spirit of God, what? You said Joseph, not Joseph. Joshua. All right, I'm having trouble reading today. Maybe their Bible says something other than mine. Yeshua. Yeshua, the son of Nun, was full of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> It's been a long day. (laughs) All right. So Joshua was full of the Spirit. God has filled us with his Spirit when we become Christians. We need to let the Spirit control our life. The Spirit wants to do great things in our life. He wants to lead us in our our conversations. He wants to lead us in in our speech. He wants to lead us in our prayer. He wants to lead us by healing people. He wants to lead us through prophecies. He wants to lead us through all numbers of activities. The, the one thing that controls the spirit is us not letting him do what he, what he wants to do. 
Now, does this mean I want you jumping around and going crazy in, the, in there, you know, running around like, like a bunch of crazy nuts like a lot of different churches do? No, because God says he does everything in order. But, you know, God can do a lot of things that, we're, that, are, that would amaze us. Healings. Oh, how many healings have I seen in my lifetime? How many prayers have I said for healings that have been miraculous healings? Praying for people, not knowing what I'm praying for, and then find out it was that they really needed that prayer and it was answered. You know, the whole thing of, of teaching, opening our mouth to share the gospel. You know, when you open your mouth to share the gospel or teach God's word or say something that's God's word, I hope you experience times when God just takes over your mouth. But all of a sudden you're like, wow. Uh, you're kind of in the background listening to your voice saying, Where, where's all this stuff coming from? It's coming from the Holy Spirit out of you. There's times when I teach that I know that it's the Holy Spirit teaching. There's times when I teach that I know it's me. And I know the difference. And I know that most of you know the difference. <laughs> all right? And it's not saying it's bad when it's just me, but it is much better when the Holy Spirit is the one that's teaching straight, straight through me. <laughs> Those really good sermons are the Holy Spirit teaching, yes. I'm not, I'll be the first to admit it. You know, the rest of them are okay. They're just not as good as the other ones, and I know that. But, you know, every pastor I've ever sat under has had that same thing. There was times when it was them teaching, and then there was times when, man, it's the Holy Spirit teaching, and you could tell the difference. And for each one of us, I hope that if you haven't experienced, pray, ask God to let it happen to you. There is nothing better than to just sit back when you're, when you're witnessing to somebody and all of them, you're kind of sitting back and you're going, wow, uh, boy, I'm, really, I'm being really eloquent today. Thank you, Spirit. You're doing a great job. <laughs> because you start, you know, and I've done that. I've, talk, I've, been, I've been praying in the background because the Holy Spirit is talking through me. God, wow, this is really wonderful. You're doing a good job. <laughs> the, Joshua was filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he had a big job. He's taken hold of three and a half million really hardcore, stubborn people. <laughs> they keep griping and arguing every time, and he's getting ready to take them into the promised land where things are supposed to get better. And yet, they're going to have nothing but big battles going on with giants, at least what look like giants to them. They're going to have big cities to conquer, and they've got a lot of land to conquer. And they don't even finish the job in the time that Joseph, uh, Joshua, why do I want to keep saying Joseph, Joseph? That Joshua is alive. They don't quite finish the job. When he dies, there's still land on the outskirts that they haven't conquered. But he tells the people, the two and a half tribes, go back. You know, if they don't want to get it conquered now, it's their problem, not, not, the rest of the, not the rest of the countries. But he says he was filled with the Spirit. Each one of us as believers in Christ and followers of Christ are filled with the Spirit. All we need to do is be willing to let the Spirit work. Be aware of this. God says that nothing can separate us. Not height, nor depth, nor width, nor principalities, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing can separate us from Christ. Nothing. Why? Because the Holy Spirit and Christ and God the Father dwell in us. And it's hard for them to be separated from us. It's not much different distance between my heart and who I am and God and, God and Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. They're right there with who I am. 
We cannot be separated. Joshua has been given leadership mantle. He was prayed over. He was given that authority. And if you want prayer, we'll pray for people to get the Holy Spirit. I have no problem with that. If you want to have the Holy Spirit fill you and use you more, we'll pray for that if that's what people want. Nothing's better than to have the Holy Spirit working through you and allowing him to work. Verse 10, And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord spent, sent him to do in the land of Egypt and to Pharaoh and all his servants and to do in his land. And in all that mighty hand and all the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of, his, of all Israel. So here's why Moses is considered the greatest prophet. He met God face to face. Several times. Mount Sinai, both times. The time he asked God, I want to see your face. And God says, you can't see my face and live, but I'll let you see my backside. But he got to talk one-on-one -on -one with God. No other prophet has had that kind of conversation with him. So he was the only one? He's the only one that's recorded in the scriptures. Now Daniel gets to talk to angels several times. Isaiah gets a vision and gets to talk to an angel. Jeremiah gets a vision. Ezekiel gets many visions and talks with angels. The only other ones we know that talked face to face with God is Adam and Eve. And they got to talk with him in the cool of the garden every day. Wouldn't that be wonderful to talk with God face to face every, every night? And they threw that away. They threw that away with their sin. Huh? Perfect temperature controlled environment. <laughs> and then the second point that he makes in this statement is in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, the ten plagues, the, the, the hand turning into leprosy, the, the, the rod turning into a serpent, uh, the ten plagues, the, the Red Sea, all the mighty works in Egypt. And remember, we talked about this many years ago now <laughs> when we talked about Exodus. The ten plagues were a battle of God against the gods of Egypt. Every one of the plagues were against one or more of the Egyptian gods. So it was a battle of the gods. God says, okay, you want to you worship the Nile and all the things that are in it? Let me turn it to blood and kill it for three days. Oh, you, want, you worship Ra, the sun? Oh, well, we'll just get rid of the sun for three days. <laughs> now, you, you're worshiping frogs? We'll give you, I'll give you more frogs than you know what to do with. You know, we'll put frogs in your ovens and your pots and your pans and your beds and your seats and your, and your wagons. You won't be able to go anywhere without frogs. You want, you want flies? We'll give, you want to worship flies? We'll give you flies. All these things that he did that were to show that these gods had no power over and over again that God did. Moses was the instrument that was used in this battle. And it says, and the last thing, and all the mighty hand and the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of Israel. Can you imagine poor Moses? He probably thought his job was over when he got the people out of Egypt. You know, he had this great big battle with Pharaoh. It only lasted a very short time because his life was basically in, in 120 years and it's broken out into three 40-year periods. He was 40 years being taught to be king of Pharaoh. Uh, king in Egypt. 
He then went 40 years on the backside of the wilderness being humbled and taught by God in Midia. Then he spent 40 years in the wilderness with the people. He did not spend a long time in Egypt trying to get the people out. Okay, the 40 years in Midia probably might have been 39 or 38 years and it took him a year or so for all of these plagues to hit Egypt. And you know, they had to be in quick succession, otherwise people would have just ridden them off. If it had taken 10 years, one plague a year, they're going, oh, wow, we're having a whole series of bad years. Just as our country does, as we're walking further and further away from God and we see bad, all the bad things that are happening in the world, wow, we're really having bad things. You know, El Nino is bad. Uh, you know, uh, global warming is bad. You know, look at all these bad things we're having. No, God is moving against this world because of its rebellion against God. And I have no problem saying that. And that will make people look at me like oh, some raving lunatic. But you know what? God's always done it. And the, all these natural phenomenons that we're having are part of God trying to get us our get attention. Just like in the book of Revelation, all the natural phenomenon are God trying to get people's attention for seven years. And we see it over and over. So Moses is broken up into three, three parts. He goes, he talked with God face to face. Burning Bush, Mount Sinai, all these different places. He did the great battle of the gods in Egypt, but he was the one that was the tool being used. And then he had to keep, he had to keep these, these very aggressive, angry people in line for 40 years. God, we're, we're, we're thirsty. Where's the water? Here's your water. We're hungry. Here's your food and your manna. God, this manna sure stinks. It's, it tastes the same every day. We'll hear some quail. God, well, you know, all these over and over again, that all they did was complain and worship idols over and over again. And Moses kept ministering to them. I kind of feel sorry for Moses sometimes. He had a very hard flock. Because it doesn't look like there were a lot of people that were worshiping God in that flock. He had Caleb and, and Joshua. He had a big flock, too. Just three and a half million people, yeah. give or take a few. You know, huge flock of a bunch of people that just didn't want to have anything to follow God. Very few of them did. He had a remnant. Especially when they threw the gold in the fire and came out like a <laughs> Yes. Uh, well, that was Exodus. That was Exodus, yes. Aaron... Aaron's excuse, he, he says, I just threw the gold in the fire and out popped this calf. <laughs> uh, one of the worst excuses I've ever heard, is, and it's in the Bible. I just, I just, but you know, how many times have we done that same kind of thing? I just happened to find myself in this situation, God. I don't know how I got here. You know, I made all these bad decisions, but I just don't understand how I got here, God. Yeah. All right, let's close in prayer. Next week we'll start the book of Joshua. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come, and we just thank you that you are so faithful, that you want to bless us, you want to give us good things, you want to show us great blessings. And we ask that you go with us as we go about our business day. Give us safety in our travels, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.